0: volume three of the journal of the presbyterian historical society issued in june of 1906 was dedicated to one theme the 200th anniversary of the organization of the presbyterian church in the united states the history begins the presbytery was organized in the city of philadelphia and in the first presbyterian church of that city in 1706 There were reports in the journal in 1906 on the differences and developments from the founding to the then present day, 1906, and that included a reflection on changes in church buildings themselves. In church architecture, they wrote, the rule at the first was to erect buildings of a very plain character. The principles guiding their construction were, first, The avoidance of the danger to spiritual life from devotion to what is merely aesthetic. Second, the church building must be an instrument for the hearing of the word and for worship. Third, there must be no suggestion of a clerical order between God and men. These are important principles. Unless they are truths, our church has no right to be. And yet the fathers may have gone too far, and we may regard the reaction of our day as a healthy one. We are no longer afraid of the Byzantine or Gothic architecture, nor of the organ, nor of the forms of prayer derived from the ancients. These facts have given rise to the preparation, by the authority of the General Assembly, of the new Book of Common Worship. The speaker desired to say for the committee who prepared it that he knew they sincerely endeavored to be true to our history and our principles that from the journal of the presbyterian historical society from june 1906 marking the 200th anniversary of the organization of the presbyterian church in the united states we're about to hear a story from northeastern pennsylvania that takes us through just such an evolution over the course of 250 years we learn that the first presbyterian church of wilkes that stands today in downtown wilkes was built in 1887 in the Romanesque Revival style, and that the round arch style was inspired by 12th century buildings found throughout Europe, but particularly the Lombard region of Northern Italy and the Rhineland in Germany. According to the study, The Art of Stained Glass, edited by Richard Rousseau, S.J., writing, the profile of the building achieves asymmetrical design the contrast of the low octagonal tower at the crossing and the tall vertical bell tower and we might say that perhaps that contrast reflects both the rootedness of that church building in the community and the church itself and its eternal hopes and aspirations The First Presbyterian Church of Wilkes-Barre is celebrating its 250th anniversary, this Sunday September 11th, and the church's history reflects at the same time the history of Northeastern Pennsylvania and the Wyoming Valley. There will be a grand music celebration with the Northeastern Pennsylvania Chamber Music Society, organist Mark Laubach, and members of the Northeastern Pennsylvania Philharmonic on October 7th, and a special service this Sunday, the 11th of September to mark the exact date. Reverend Dr. Robert Zanicki is now in his 36th year as minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Wilkes-Barre, and he paid a visit to the WVIA studios to share some of that history.
1: At that point in time in the northeastern part of Pennsylvania, it was considered Connecticut, and that the settlers from Connecticut came down through the uh, Susquehanna Company. And so that's where they settled in the uh, wilkes area before it was called that. And so this was back in 1769-ish, and so they were Connecticut colonists. And at that point up at New England, the Yankees were the offspring of the Puritans coming over in the early part of the 1600s, and they were of the Reformed tradition. The Protestant development of the church happened in the 16th century, And uh, very quickly, the Christian tradition that was outside now had separated from the Roman Catholic Church, broke into four basic categories, Uh, one being Lutheran, from Martin Luther, the second being Reformed tradition, which was through uh, a second-generation John Calvin. Then you had the English, in terms of the Anglican Church, and then you had what really were kind of lumped together as the Radicals. And in any event, the Puritans... In New England, that came over in 16310 different times. They would be the the harbingers, or they'd be the the pre-settlers that then came down from Connecticut to Pennsylvania. And what it turns out is that the Puritan theology was shared by both the what we call now the Congregationalists of New England slash Puritan, but their theology and the Presbyterian theology were the shared. The difference is that congregationalism was much more, we, this is my own, this is our own church, uh, particular area, particular building, and we, by following God in the, their way, uh, we make those decisions. Where Presbyterians said, we do a lot of that, but still we're going to elect people to represent us, just kind of like the national federal government uh, has a reflection of that, as do the Episcopals. So anyhow, my understanding is September 11th, 1772, is actually the date when the town, not not the church, but because, again, keeping in mind the more close proximity of church and communities, that the town voted to call their first pastor, that was that date. I know a lot of folks, even myself, originally I'm thinking September 11th because of our recent history of that event, but uh, this is the actual historical date for us in our beginnings. And so originally, again, it was uh, a little bit of a mixture, but it was the same tradition in the Reformed tradition, and from there we moved on, and uh, we didn't have a church at first. We Met in homes. Then there was a there was like a log cabin slash courthouse that was built on the square, and so that's where the people again, because there wasn't that distinction between well, like your denomination and mine. It was just this is the earliest grouping, so they all got together. But then, over a period of time, things began to change, and there were more and more recognitions of different denominations here uh, in the valley. And so, while well, there there was that the Panamite Wars, and then later on with the the British and the uh, Native Americans, in terms of like that, the Battle of Wyoming and such. But and it was certainly in, into Wilkesbury also. There were there were changes where uh, certain buildings were burned down, destroyed, and then they rebuilt them. And then at one point, a group of churches, different denominations got together, and they built what came to be known as the Old Ship Zion. Now, my understanding is, I've seen it up on the square. If you walk around the square, you'll find the bell. Uh, It's there. There's a little plaque to it, and it's it's there on the square. So the four different denominations now, there was what you'd call the Congregationalist, Presbyterian, the Episcopals, the Methodist, and the Baptists. So when I say four, I'm combining the Congregationalists and the, and the Presbyterians. So they shared that building, but there were, <laughs> sadly, you know, even people, what we call the body of Christ, they don't always see eye to eye. And so there was a separation. More and more, there were, there were difficulties in terms of the use of the building. And at one point, uh, the story goes, because I, I believe it was the Episcopalians who first said, we're going to step away and build our own church, which they ended up doing down on Franklin Street, which later on, we did the same thing. Just uh, not not far away on the same block. But at one point, the Presbyterians, because of that Puritan background—you know, back at that time, Puritans, that theology really did not allow for celebrating Christmas because it became debauchery for them. People drank and this and that. And so what happened was our Episcopal friends in the church, the old ship Zion, they would hang the greens for Advent those times. And the Presbyterian Congregationalists would come in and tear them down. And I guess that happened quite a bit. And so finally, I think our neighbors said enough of this, and they started, they built their own church. But the funny thing about that, one of the many, is that we at First Presbyterian Church, we hang the greens, uh, maybe not quite as in a particular liturgical way, but we hang them for the four Sundays of Advent. And we have trees that are 14 to 16 feet high, two of them up in front of the church, where our ancestors would be just, oh, they'd be so angry. But we've, we finally caught hold of what the Episcopals were doing and said, we like this too. We have two books that have been published dealing with the, the history of the, of the church, and there are other things we've done research on, and it's, it's just been fascinating.
0: Let's stay with that building. It dominates the corner because mm. it is so massive, and the stonework is mm. so remarkable, and the steeple is unusual. Do you know anything about the architecture and why that plan Ye- was taken?
1: Uh, yes, a little bit. Let, let me share, the, mentioning the, the tower. There is no bell in that tower. Some of people thought, oh, what about that bell down on the square? <laughs> you know, But I don't know why. I have not seen it in anything that I've read. And nobody shared with me, like, why did we not put a bell in there? Don't know. And by the way, I've never been up there. I'm not brave enough to try to get up there. Uh, if you would see how one does get up there, some, somebody braver or, or with less sense would get up there. But it's quite a tower. So in any event, to go back to the question about the architect, the architect was James Cleveland Cady. He is also was also the designer of the Metropolitan Opera House of that era. And it turns out some of his family actually became members of the church over the years. The uh, Eberhard Faber family, there, there's a relationship there. And anyhow, they, they went out and they picked up one of the top architects of the, of the time. I skipped over that whenever earlier on, when we ended up leaving the old ship Zion, we did purchase some property not far from St. Stephen's on Franklin Street and uh, built a, a wooden frame church, and then we outgrew that, and then that was taken down, and we built what they called uh, have called the Brick Church, and that now is where the Oosterhout Library is. The Oosterhout Library, Mr. Oosterhout was a, a member of the Episcopal Church right there, and so in any event, th- that was purchased, and so we then moved right down to the corner and then purchased that property and built the church we have now. And it is a beautiful structure. Um, Much of the interior, the stained glass windows are Tiffany. And uh, the other part on Northampton Street are English windows. They're called Pauline windows because of the writer of much of the New Testament, Paul. They are vignettes of stories that he tells in those scriptures that he wrote. And so you see those and you can learn stories about what was going on 2,000 years ago. So that the church has been there again since, I think it was 1887, 88, 89. I'm, I think it was 88 or 89 when it was totally completed. And uh, then, of course, we had a, a major dedication and such there. Oh, the redstone, that came from just somewhere up north of us. And so, so the stone itself is local, and there are other many beautiful churches in our area, but it is, it is quite, uh, quite beautiful.
0: And how do you experience the space inside? Because when we enter, we are astounded by this fulsome space and mm. the way the pews are arranged mm. and the windows. It's quite a—it's it's just quite a visceral experience. When oh, you... it, it
1: certainly is. And it's again—I smile because when I think of our history from uh, Reformation times through the Puritans and such, and then Presbyterian, the way of thinking back at that time, in fact. There's that old church structure that's over in Forty Fort.
0: Yes, the Forty Fort meeting house.
1: If you would go into that building, that would have been the major way of of architecture for the Puritans slash Presbyterians back then. So when you walk into our church, <laughs> thankfully, at least for many of us, we took advantage of the fact that that could be done, that could be afforded, and that they built this, this church that just is so magnificent when you walk in. As you said, it's visceral, it's, it's, it's inspiring, it, it reminds me on a certain level, um, not equating it, but with our Eastern Orthodox friends that I remember over the years I've spoken to different priests and such and friends, and one of their thoughts, and I, I hear, I've heard it consistently from them, that their idea was when you walk into an Eastern Orthodox church, or at least an Eastern church, we want you to feel like you're going into heaven. And if you look at their, their uh, ceiling, it does have that look to it and such. Well, we, we didn't go that way, but we, we went with the idea of magnificence and beauty.
0: Of course, it's not just physical beauty, but there are the sounds reverberating in those spaces. How is the music part of what the Presbyterian yep. Church does? It, it's,
1: a, it's a primary piece. Uh, music just uh, opens the heart and the senses— And we have been blessed to have a magnificent music program. When I first arrived, Myron Leet was there, and he spent quite a few years there. And uh, was a consummate artist on on the organ. And so after he retired, John Vida from Wyoming Seminary came on board. And he's been with us 22 years, I believe it is now. And we have been greatly blessed with John. John not only brings the talent of playing, but also he has all those connections, and so he's been able to bring in some just magnificent vocalists, uh, instrumentalists to the church for Sunday mornings, but also for special events, which we've been highlighting this past year, quite a few of them, and we have one other major, besides uh, our September 11th Sunday morning worship service, which is going to be a special time but also and then a lunch followed down at, at, at the Westmoreland Club. And the plan is we're going to process down from the church right after the service. with It's all set up with a uh, bagpiper leading us down as we go to the luncheon. And uh, it's been a wonderful turnout in terms of reservations. In fact, we've exceeded the limit, so we're, we're hoping we can get those extra ones in that want to be there. But the music, again, has just been so instrumental to us and for us and John has just done a magnificent job and carried on for us these years.
0: Tell us what happened. We saw pictures in the paper of opening a time
1: capsule. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, it was exciting except there was there was a, it was a little bit anticlimactic in a certain way that we had it all set up and uh, had hired a gentleman but it turned out on that Sunday morning, the plan was that the stone would just be pulled out then, but it had to be prepared because it hadn't been moved, it was cemented in there for 50 years. And so the gentleman had worked on it for a week or more. And uh, the plan was that that Sunday morning after church service, we'd walk out and gather around and just reach into the stone that had been released there and pull out the time capsule. And then it would be the following week to show what was there. Well, it turned out <laughs> couldn't get the stone out. The stone got moved, but not moved enough. So we were able to, thankfully, actually through C&D, the company that's doing our roof, they said, hell, we'll take care of it. And they did. They were able to pull it out and to open it up, and we got the material from the, the time capsule, and then we displayed it for the next Four weeks, and uh, there were some some materials way back 100, 150 years ago, I think. Others that were more recent, in, um, about 50 years ago, when Dr. Jouleurs was was there, and uh, there were writings. Oh, there was a newspaper, or maybe oh, no, that was an almanac from I think 100 or 150 years ago, and when you opened it, it opened into a large, probably 18 by 24 inches, and what it did was it showed the voting record of the area. So I haven't spent time <laughs> looking at that, but I thought that was interesting to, to have that way back then, you know. So, you know, it was interesting. It's been very interesting to see what was placed there. And now we are we haven't decided, but we are thinking, okay, what are we going to place in there for the next time they do this 50 years from now? And we do have some, you know, some of our members that are very active that are young enough that, that hopefully they'll be around to, to say, yeah, the, yeah, we did this way back when, you know. So that, it was exciting, but a little bit unnerving for a few days.
0: Is there anything in store for us to join you in any way still before the bow is tied?
1: (laughs) Well, on September 11th for the special service, and we're going to have increased instrumentalists there, some wonderful horns and a little larger choir. And so that's going to be a very special at 10 o'clock. But also coming up on Friday, October 7th at 7 o'clock in the evening in our church, and everyone is invited. It's a free concert that will be featuring, it's called a Grand Music Celebration, featuring Northeast Pennsylvania Chamber Music Society, our guest organist, our neighbor, Mark Laubach, and members of the Northeast Pennsylvania Philharmonic. So it is going to be a magnificent event. And again, the public is welcome. We'd love to have them there. And that's kind of, I guess, this is, I think, around the ninth or tenth special event we've held. It's kind of the culmination overall, because one of the mentioning that First Presbyterian Church has been a part of this community from its inception. I mean, the very people that started it were the townspeople that, I mean, they're the ones that voted on, let's bring a minister in. And the history of the church uh, via the pastors, via the leadership within the church of the elders, deacons, uh, trustees, there's always been this idea that we're we're not unto ourselves, but we are also part of this broader community. And I really believe, I, I know it's the case, I'm still here because of that belief along those lines. And another that brings to mind another thought. Probably 20, 25 years ago, I met a young Scottish man that was in the area, and he started coming to the church. And he and I were out for breakfast one morning over probably at Boscov's, and when we were walking back to the church, before we stepped to the other side of Franklin Street, he stopped and I stopped with him, and he looked over at our church, and he said, what do you see when you look at your church? I don't even remember exactly what I said. And he said, permanence. He said, it's there to stay. I even get a little chill when I'm even sharing this, because when I do think in terms of 250 years that we've been there, I think it's kind of neat neat also as a Scottish fellow because of the Scots, you know, their church is, the Church of Scotland is Presbyterian, not saying how they are necessarily today, but that's part of our history also from there. And so I, I really thought that was just such a magnificent interpretation from somebody from the outside. And I, I thought, he's right.
0: Reverend Dr. Robert Zanucki, now in his 36th year as minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Wilkesbury, speaking about the 250th anniversary of the church, celebrated this Sunday, September 11th, at a special service at 10 a.m. with wonderful choral forces, organ music, instrumentalists, and much more. In addition, there will be a 250th anniversary grand music celebration presented at the First Presbyterian Church October 7th at 7 p.m., 97 South Franklin Street in downtown Wilkes-Barre, featuring the Northeastern Pennsylvania Chamber Music Society. The guest organist will be Mark Laubach, and also featured members of the Northeastern Pennsylvania Philharmonic. The public is invited to attend. Admission is free. It's the 250th anniversary grand music celebration presented by the First Presbyterian Church of Wilkes-Barre, 97 South Franklin Street, and it's October 7th at 7 p.m. Admission is free. And for more information on the web, fpc-wb.org. And that's First Presbyterian Church hyphen wilkes So it's fpc-wb.org. First Presbyterian Church of Wilkes-Barre, celebrating its 250th anniversary this Sunday, September 11th, with a special service at 10 a.m. And also, there will be a grand music celebration with the Northeastern Pennsylvania Chamber Music Society organist Mark Laubach and members of the Northeastern Pennsylvania Philharmonic on October 7th at 7 p.m. Admission is free. For more information on the web, FPC hyphen WB dot org.